Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performance Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. I usually do an intro here, and I introduce my guests, and I talk about myself, but today's episode's a little different, so I figured the introduction should be a little bit different. So this is episode 277, and I have interviewed 276 amazing people. Some episodes have two people. Some of the episodes have a panel, so let's just go 276 people to balance it out. And over that span, I've often contemplated and thought that, gosh, you know who I'd love to have on here? My dad. He's one of the most interesting people I've ever been around. And I've had a front row seat to witness, to ask him questions, to observe, to notice. And I'm pausing intentionally because I was hesitant to have him on the podcast. And the reason I was hesitant is because I like to ask questions that other people don't necessarily ask. And certainly I've had friends on the podcast, people I care deeply about. But I knew with my dad, it would be extremely personal. And I wanted to ask him questions that I don't always get to ask him. Even though there's space for us in our relationship to ask questions, we don't always sit for an hour and a half and learn with each other. We don't always sit and ask what's really on our mind and share in a vulnerable way. And we have a very healthy relationship. So I guess there was some fear for me in bringing my dad into this community bringing my dad into my world, even though I've always been part of his. And I've referenced my dad a ton in conversations with others. There are people that have come on this podcast that are good friends of my dad. There are people that have come on the podcast that would have never come on the podcast if it wasn't for my dad. So it's an interesting thing to chew on and to think about. And we actually, I mentioned this in the podcast, we started recording it a few years ago. My dad can be a long storyteller. And back then I used to often start these episodes by asking for people to tell me about their journey. And my dad has an amazing memory. And so he could go really deep with amazing attention to detail about his journey. So we ended up not publishing that. And when we sat down today, a few years After a pandemic, for some, I know they're still in it. My dad is now 72 years old. I didn't want to wait any longer to really ask him some questions I was curious about and to share him. He's one of the most wonderful people I've ever been around. He's one of the most intentional performers I've ever been around. And so I felt inspired. I felt obligated I was excited to go deeper with him and to be willing to share him and a side to him that maybe others don't get to see or don't know and get to share that side of him with other people. And I think it turned out great. We uncovered and talked about some things that we haven't ever talked about, which sounds absurd. It sounds ridiculous 
ridiculous that we had to fire up a microphone and uh, a recorder in order to get to some places that aren't necessarily discussed. But then I start thinking about, gosh, I do that with a lot of my relationships. And many of my friends will say, and, and people closest to me will say, Brian's a deep thinker. He asks interesting questions. He pushes me, he challenges me. But I think most of us don't ask the questions that we want to ask to the people that are closest to us. And so for me, that was pretty jaw-dropping that there were parts of this conversation that we hadn't discussed in detail previously. And so for you, as you're listening to this conversation, I hope you take that away more than anything else. I had a friend recently whose dad passed away and I could just hear it in his voice say, hey, don't wait to take pictures. Don't wait to have conversations. Have them now because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And I think that's true for all of us. So I hope this conversation inspires you. I hope it challenges you to sit down with the people that you love. It doesn't have to be with a recorder. I also videoed this because I thought it would be a good keepsake. But you don't have to do that. You can if you want. But what would it look like for you to sit down with people that you're really close to and just be really curious and listen without judgment and maybe share some of what you've observed with them as well as you'll hear in this conversation. So that's my challenge to you. And you know what would really make me feel fulfilled? If I got a text from you, an email from you, a direct message from you saying that you sat down with someone you love and you went really deep and you didn't hold back and you learned about that person and you grew because of that person. I know I did. So now to today's guest, which is my dad, Bruce Levinson, as I get a little teary uh, talking about him. You know, my dad, in some areas of the world, became more well-known when he bought into the Atlanta Hawks and the Atlanta Thrashers. I was a sophomore in college. Uh, and a lot of people would come up to me and say, gosh, I had no idea your dad had the capacity to do something like that. You know, money is talked about in this conversation. And my parents were very intentional with how they talked about money with me and my brothers. And I think that helped prepare us for what came next. And so the Hawks and the Thrashers, we got to become fans. We got to be in the locker room, in the war room, so to speak. Um, interact with players and front office and coaches. It's probably one of the reasons I got into sports psychology. I was interested in learning more about what makes those people high performers. It's probably one of the reasons I recorded this podcast. Although I think about my freshman year of college and I remember the People on my floor used to call me Stat Boy after PTI, Pardon the Interruption, that show. I've always loved sports. Uh, and I've always loved helping people, which is the psychology piece. But back to my dad. So he got more well-known when he bought into those teams. Um, but even before that, he was extremely successful in the business world. 
he co-founded a company called United Communications Group. And you'll hear my dad talk about them running multiple companies. Uh, they acquired a lot of companies along the way, including a company called Tech Target, which ended up going public and is still a publicly traded company. Uh, there was a company called Gas Buddy, who you might have used on your phone, that they acquired at one point that helped people find gas close to them. And then they had a lot of other companies that you probably have never heard of that were industry specific. And my dad and his co-founder, Ed, are journalists. Uh, that's their trade. That's what they came into the business world doing. And so they really believed in creating exceptional content. And so they were a business to business newsletter and they would sell their content to other companies. So if you weren't in that industry, you probably never heard of a lot of their companies. My dad also went to law school. He went to law school at night as he was working extremely hard. Uh, as you'll hear in this conversation, my dad does not mind working hard. He actually enjoys it. Uh, and he obviously, in this conversation, we hear him has hoped to pass that down to me and my brothers. And I think he has uh, instilled a work ethic in us. Um, he also uh, was somebody who was an entrepreneur. Uh, he was involved in restaurants. Uh, he, in his later years, started a toaster company uh, called Revolution Cooking, which you should check out. It's a pretty fascinating thing. And so my dad is an idea guy. He's a dreamer. He's an optimist. Um, and you see those come out in business. He also loves people. He loves to lead. He loves to manage. He loves to inspire. Uh, and then philanthropically, he, he has been just extremely active ever since I can remember. Uh, one of the coolest things that him and my mom have done together, and, and they, they often do stuff together when it comes to their philanthropic endeavors, is they helped form something called the Do Good Institute at the University of Maryland, which aims to educate and train the next generation of nonprofit leaders and people in the social sector who are changing our world uh, in, in really amazing ways. Um, so I have learned so much from my dad on the business side of it. Um, and he's been honored. He's in a hall of fames in his industry and he's been acknowledged from people in our community as well for his philanthropic work. But I mentioned the Hall of Fame because what I always tell people is, yeah, in his industry, he's in the Hall of Fame, but as a dad, he was just a Hall of Fame dad. And I know a lot of his peers would come to him to ask him, how are you able to be successful in business and successful in your marriage and successful as a father? And as a son, I can tell you, my dad was just extremely present for me and my brothers. He coached our teams. He played with us. He was home. You know, talk about being home for dinner, which is something he's instilled in me and my brothers as well. And he was always there. And when he was there, he was present. And so for us, he was just dad. And over the years, people come up to me and tell me how much they love my dad and how great he is. And I'd say, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I never felt like I was under his shadow. I felt like I was much more on his shoulders. And I never and have never really thought about being more successful than him or, or competing or being better than him. He's got his own talents. I've got mine. And fortunately for me, I've got some of his talents and there's some that did not get passed down to me and may have gotten passed down to my brothers. But both my parents are people that I admire deeply. They're role models. They're ins inspiring to me. And at 72 years old to watch my dad live, um, to live his life intentionally, 
with energy and enthusiasm, a curiosity, a desire to grow and learn. And I'm seeing him also learn how to be a little bit more, which we get into this conversation. When I was younger, I was always the guy on vacation. I would say, can we just chill? Because my dad and my older brother like to get up early, go, 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 go. So my dad and my mom used to put in chill time for us on our vacations. But even more than that, I think about this conversation and how cool it was to hear my dad open up about some of his struggles and some of his challenges. A lot of my friends will say to me, gosh, your dad just wins. But he's had losses. He's had hardships. He's had some tough, tough moments. And I think none of us go through life without scars. All of us go through life and at some point we're going to face some adversity. And I witnessed and observed it deeply impact my dad. Not necessarily, I wasn't necessarily aware of how deep it cut. I knew it cut pretty hard. But there's some moments in here that, that get pretty true and honest and vulnerable. And I think it's important to hear because I think other people might have looked at my dad for a lot of years and thought that he was perfect in a lot of ways. And none of us are. And we all have things we need to work on and, and, and grow and, and improve. And I think from the outside looking in, sometimes people make the mistake to think everybody's good when the truth is everyone has their own shit. And I think if you acknowledge your own shit and your own stuff, then it's not going to necessarily control you. You know, I had a mentor once who actually recently passed away and he used to say, do you have this story or does the story have you? It's really stuck with me because we all have stories. My dad has so many stories. And do we have the story or does the story have us? I just think it's a really big piece to this puzzle. So I think I've done a good enough job introducing my dad. I could go on and on. I could probably do a whole podcast on my perspective. He's an incredible human. He is thoughtful. He's generous, he's caring, he's kind. And I hope that comes across in this conversation. So here's my dad. Enjoy it. All right, dad. So I think you are podcast episode like 277 or 78 or 79, something like that. Okay. I've interviewed a lot of interesting people, but you've been one of the most interesting people in my life. So I'm excited (laughs) to have this conversation with you today. And when we've tried to do this in the past... We usually get to like age 38, like around my age, and we're like two and a half hours in. So for the sake of the listeners today, and for us, I figured we'd start at the end in mind instead of the beginning. So nothing about delivering newspapers, nothing about shoveling snow? Yeah, selling bagels or working at a bagel store. Okay. All that stuff. I think we'll cover it if you want to. We can weave it in. Okay. But it's interesting because we did a talk involving bagels we did a talk at uh the jewish community center in in washington dc actually in rockville maryland and we did it in an hour it was great yep it was fun and one of the questions that got popped to me after we completed it and finished was somebody wanted to know why is your dad still entrepreneurial after all of his business ventures, everything he's ever done. Why is he messing around and and building a toaster? Why is he staying with that? And so maybe we'll start there. So talk about why you continue to have an itch to build, to do business, to invent, to create. You're 72 years old, cat's out of the bag. 
Why do you continue to want to create? Um, perhaps it's uh, fear of dying. Um, no, seriously, uh, somebody told me a long time ago that when you stop growing, you start dying. I have no interest in dying. So I, I've really just always wanted to keep growing, keep learning, keep walking fast. You said you said fear of dying, and then you sit, then you chuckled. Why did you, why did you say that, and why didn't you go there? Um, I mean, just that holds no appeal to me. It's kind of, I mean, I don't I don't have any life insurance. I don't believe I'm you know kind of betting against myself. I'd rather bet for myself, and um, so I just I think I'll I'll keep you know walking fast for as long as I can. Do you ever enjoy walking slow? Ah, oh, that's a good question. Um, oh, yeah. Um, I love walking slow on the golf course. That's what I was, I was smiling. <laughs> yeah, no, but walking on the beach. Yeah, yeah there's, you know, yeah, I, I think I find plenty of time to walk slow. How do you blend those two? How do you stay focused on growing? And like, I always think about becoming and being. Mm -hmm. So becoming is growing, developing, learning, mm -hmm. seeing things. And then there's this part of being, which is just present and slow. And Well, I got to go back. I have to go back because uh, my dad, who was a salesman in a sporting goods store and who worked very hard Monday through Saturday and till nine o'clock on Thursdays, um, always tried to make it home for dinner. And, um, I don't know that, that really, that really stayed with me. So, you know, on the one hand, always finding time for family time, uh, to do things other than working or running fast it was always a priority as well. Our generation we can be home for dinner, but that doesn't mean we're necessarily home. Uh -huh. And so there's this challenge that people run into because of technology. Mm -hmm. And I know you, mm -hmm. you were someone who was a late adapter to cell phones, uh, Blackberries, Windows, Windows. <laughs> but never, I never thought that would work. But I watch you now and you actually are on the phone a lot. Mm -hmm. You do use it. You are actually pretty technologically sound and, and, and you're on there, you're not on social media per se, but I'm curious for you when you watch people my age and you see them on their phones, mm -hmm. what, what are you observing? What are you noticing from, from your lens? Yeah. Um, that, so you won't see me on my phone unless there's an absolute sort of urgency to it when I'm playing golf, for instance, um, when I'm having dinner with my family. So I, I, you know, I, I think, gosh, it's it's been wonderful. It's been liberating. It it lets us go places and do things and still stay connected. But boy, when I walk into a restaurant and I see a mother and father and the two, you know, the twelve year old and the fifteen year old, and all they're doing is looking at their, that drives me nuts. Mm -hmm. That really really bothers me. What do you think you would be like if you still had access? Because because you're driven, you're ambitious. Mm -hmm. And I think for your generation, it was it was easier to shut it off because you didn't have your office in your pocket. Yeah. I do think it's harder to do that now. Now, it's also easier to be home for dinner than mm -hmm. it probably was for people your age. Yes. 
So, so I'm curious, like, as you think back, were you ever like, after we had dinner, were you ever going back to, to work, so to speak, or were you able to compartmentalize that, you know, all right, I'm home now, I'm gonna be home, maybe I'll watch the news, what have you. But for most of the people that I know that are hard chargers, like they might be home, they might be present at dinner, they might put the kids down, but then afterwards they're going back on the computer and, and working. A lot of people do that. Yeah, that was always the case. Mm-hmm. Always the case. Um, mom goes to sleep earlier than me. I stay up late. And those hours between the time when she would go to bed and I would go to bed were oftentimes um, wonderful hours to to work, you know, have have quiet. Uh, when you were younger, the kids would be asleep. When you weren't in the house, it was just Karen, and she would be asleep. But always um, those couple of hours, you know, call it 10 to 12, uh, you know, could be very productive hours for me, and, and, remain, and, and it remains that way to this day. So you enjoy getting work in when it, maybe other people are sleeping or, mm. or watching TV. That was a mm-hmm. part of, like, I didn't see that as a mm-hmm. kid. I was asleep. You were asleep. So you were often working mm-hmm. after I went to bed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in the morning you go to work, put those hours in. Um, and then at work, was there anything you would do intentionally to be deliberate while you were there to make sure that you were being efficient with your time, knowing that most nights you're coming home from dinner? I have memories of mom calling you, asking you when you'd, when you'd be home. But uh-huh. you were. You were home for dinner like your dad uh, most nights. At, you also have memories of when, you know, I'd come home and she'd say, here are the boys. Take them. <laughs> and we'd go downstairs. And play and soccer. Play soccer or, you know, some other sport that we invented in the basement. So actually, can you stay there? You would come home from a hard day's work, mm-hmm. and then you had three rambunctious boys. Mm-hmm. How did you have the energy to do both? And, and like, what was that like for you? You know, I, I, this may sound I, I don't ever remember coming home tired from work. Hmm. I, I loved work. Um, I, I really did. I, I was a really lucky guy to work with a bunch of terrific people, a lot of young people who, you know, kind of kept me young. So I'd come home from work, and when mom would say, take the boys down, that was recess. I mean, that was great. It was terrific. Hmm. And building, let's go back to this toaster that you're building. <laughs> we can think about building United Communications Group. A lot of your entrepreneurial spirit has been building stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself to be a builder? Do you consider yourself to be an entrepreneur? Do you consider yourself to be a journalist? Do you consider yourself to be a CEO, executive leader? Mm-hmm. How, how, from an identity standpoint, have you saw yourself? I'm not saying identity as a human, but identity when it comes to your craft. I, I boy, that's a good one. Um, you know, I mean, you know, I love to write. So that's sort of the, the journalism piece. I love to ask questions. That's the journalism piece. Um, but I also, I love to build, um, and I can think, you know, in so many different ways, um, whether it's building a business, um, building an, an organization, a nonprofit organization, building a house. I mean, those are things that I really love doing. And part of the love of that is, um, being part of a team. It's not like I'm the builder. Um, I, I really love, uh, working with in partnership with others. Um, that's, you know, I've always loved playing team sports. I mean, that being part of a team is something that I've, I've always really loved. So I'm 38 years old. Mm-hmm. 
when you were 38 years old, Mm -hmm. what was a weakness that you had then that you feel like you've gotten better at or improved upon over the past 35 years? And now come the tough questions. Um, When I was 38. Um. I'm not, I'm not, I just want, because I'm thinking of something in particular and I'm not sure I've gotten particularly good at it. What is that? Uh, taking on too many different things. Hmm. Um, you know, when you think of, I, back then I was building a business. I owned a couple of restaurants that I was involved in. I had already gotten involved in some inner city nonprofit initiatives. Um, yeah, you were, you were coaching sports teams. All, all the sports teams. I remember when, there was one spring where there were a lot of rainouts, and there was one week where we had 21 games. Yeah, I don't forget that 21 games between you and your brothers. Um, so, you know, just I, I think I still do that. I think I still, you know, take on too much. I don't think I've gotten great at at, at that. Saying no. Yeah. How, how saying no to myself, or perhaps saying no to others. Yeah. How else has that gotten in the way for you? Is not saying no. What are some examples or stories of when that's bit you in the ass? Um, as we were building UCG, it it became sort of nine separate companies, and. Uh, we, you know, we, we did that intentionally. Each company had a president, a CFO. Uh, we had some shared services. Um, but, um, you know, we kept adding these businesses, launching these businesses, adding these businesses. And, um, you know, I, I, would, I, would, I love being hands-on. And, it, you know, as I tried to become hands-on in many of those businesses, I think I became less effectively hands-on um just too many too many businesses to you know try to get your hands dirty in it's interesting because there's a model that i talk about my clients around confrontation and on one side it's like an x and a y like a quad so you have passive and assertive Mm -hmm. and then on the other side you have uncooperative and cooperative okay and so you can be passive and un cooperative. Uh-huh. And if you do that, you're avoidant, mm-hmm. passive and uncooperative. If you're assertive mm-hmm. and you're uncooperative, mm-hmm. you're also you're often competing. Mm-hmm. If you're high on assertiveness and high on cooperation, you're often collaborating. Mm-hmm. And if you're high on passive mm-hmm. and high on cooperation, mm-hmm. forget passive, that's not yeah. You know, that's not my vocabulary. Yeah, but it's needed at times, right? Uh-huh. So you just said you were passive. Uh, you, sorry, you were hands-on and you weren't mm-hmm. passive. Mm-hmm. And so avoidance is actually needed. I think about myself as a parent. There's a time where I actually need to take myself out of mm-hmm. what my kids are going through and mm-hmm. let them figure it out for themselves. Mm-hmm. And that that's the avoidant one. Mm-hmm. But the other piece of it is we also sometimes need to be accommodating, mm-hmm. which is passive but high on cooperation mm-hmm. is the last box there. Mm-hmm. Um, so for you being hands on, where did you see that 
get in the way in business or even in life where maybe there were times where maybe you needed to be more passive. Cause you even, you even interrupted me before I got to the fourth box and said, that's not me. I'm not mm-hmm. high on passive. Yeah. That's interesting. And then I, then as you, as you talked about it, I, I thought more about it. Um, and I think, I, I think, I, I really think I'm, I, I'm, I'm never passive in, in this respect either I am assertive or in my mind I'm asserting and you're intentionally holding back and then I have to put the brakes on that's right and you know I mean it's so hard you always a lot of times you think I could do it better uh, you know I can do that better and it is hard to sort of keep your mouth shut in those moments and let people make their own mistakes and um, when are you, or, when are you or, not, or, a, when or, are you not in do, that, in that headspace? When are you like, hmm. gosh, this is something I'm really not good at. Oh, well, that's a, I mean, lots of times. I mean, I'll tell you a quick, quick story. Uh, one of my partners, Todd, uh, we hired his company to, this is 1990. 1990, we hire, he's in commercial real estate. We hire his company to find us new office space in in Washington as we're, the business is growing. And this young guy shows up one day and he um, has like a computer with him. And he has these things called spreadsheets and I think it was called DBase back then. And he starts modeling out things. He says, well, we can do this, but let's just change one of the variables and we can do that. I was like, oh, my God. You know, the, the, the practical applications for that in our business were um, enormous. And uh, I went to his boss, who was a friend of mine, and said, would it be okay if I hire this guy? And then a few years later, Todd becomes one of my partners. I mean, computers, you know, in, in 1977, when we started our company, we had a bunch of typewriters, and um, in 1980, our customers started saying, your information's great. Can we get it more frequently? We used to type it, put it on paper, put it in the mail, and send it to them. And um, we're like, how are we going to do that? How are we going to get it to them faster? And we had a reporter working for us named Nancy, and Nancy said, my husband is a computer scientist. Maybe you should talk to him. And so we, we talked to Bob, and Bob said, you know, we can deliver this online. I, you know, this is 1980. This is way before the Internet, um, before AOL. Um, and um, like, I don't know how to do that. He said, well, let me help you. And Bob became one of our partners and built out our, um, you know, our, our online information offerings which became really the, the key, probably the key to this, the big success of our company. It's interesting, though. So those are times where you're empowering them to bring their talents mm-hmm. to it. But how would you also manage or assist them or help them in areas that maybe you knew they were more competent or qualified in the thing? Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, where did you yeah. come in and 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 serve them? Yeah, uh, I I think I came in uh, by adding an element of intelligent impatience. So um, you know, Bob was 
you know, developing stuff for us and, you know, wanting to get it perfect. And I'd be pushing, uh, you know, we got to get this, we got to bring this to market, you know, perfect, you know, is the enemy of good. We'll be okay. Um, I think, I, I think, I, and I think Bob would tell you that he would be the first one to say, you know, Bruce was, you know, was there pushing, you know, let's get this out the door. Um, and, um, I, I, that idea of in, in intelligent impatience, I think, um, has really served me well through, throughout my various endeavors. So let's stay on partnership and, and to set the table here, let's just use your partnerships at UCG. And I know there are a lot of other mm -hmm. ones, mm -hmm. but let's just mm -hmm. focus on a few. So mm -hmm. Nancy, Todd, Bob, Ed, mm -hmm. Dan, Dan yeah. let, let's focus on those mm -hmm. for now. Mm -hmm. What would they say about you? Ah, oh, you got to get them on your podcast. I know. Um, what would they say about me? How would they describe you? Uh, so this would be how I would hope they would describe me. I, I you know, um, I I would hope they they would describe me as someone who um, it was. Um, stimulating to be at the table with um, lots of ideas not all of them good um, some of those people would serve as governors uh, on some of my ideas um, sometimes I, those rules would reverse um, someone who um, you know approached the job with joy and humor um, fun um, you know, we would sometimes, you know, this meeting would be inter interrupted to discuss a movie that one, that I saw the night before. Or they, you know, did you see that movie? Did you see that show? Um, I, you know, I, I think that created a collegial environment. Um, and then somebody also who, uh, I mean, some of those people came later. Ed and I started the company together 40, 45 years ago. And so some of them, you know, came later. And before they became partners, they, they worked for the company. And, um, you know, I like to heap responsibility on people. Um, and, you know, those are all people who we had this courtship period when, you know, we worked together. And then, um, you know, these were people who took the responsibilities and ran with them and did wonderful things and helped, you know, share in the building of the company together. So you had high quality partnerships in your business for many, many years. These were people that came to my wedding. They became mm -hmm. friends. It mm -hmm. was clear that you didn't just keep work at work, that these people also were people that you admired and mm -hmm. they admired you. You knew their kids. They knew us. There was a familial element to it, even though it wasn't a family business, which was kind of interesting. Yes. Um, and you know, it's funny, uh, you know, I, just got off the phone with Todd uh, a few minutes ago. Um, even though we've kind of gone our separate ways, he's off doing other things now. Um, I was on the phone with Ed for an hour last night. He just uh, produced a documentary, and I watched it last night. And you know, we spent at least an hour talking about it. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's really enormous mutual respect. And, you know, when I think about partnerships, 
you know, the ones that have worked and the ones that haven't worked because they haven't all worked, the ones that did work all had one thing in common. There was this courtship period. We didn't jump into it. It was a courtship period where mutual respect and trust was built and then a partnership was formed. That goes back to me and mom, um, you know, who also are getting ready to celebrate our 45th wedding anniversary. Uh, again, you know, there was the courtship period. The, in, in every case where the partnerships didn't wor work out, there was not that courtship period. Rushed. Mm -hmm. And then what, and, ca what and caused that to, what caused the rush? Opportunity. Mm. All right. I want to go back one step and then we'll talk about the sports teams and, and what that was like for you. But it's interesting because I always tell people that great relationships are about respect, which you hit on, trust, which you hit on, and great communication. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's the hardest one, I think, in certain respects. Because if we have it in our DNA, you know, we all think of ourselves, well, I'm a good person. Um, so the trust kind of comes to the surface. The mutual respect comes to the surface. The communication you know, you know, that's an interesting one that you bring up because I think that's the one that really requires intention. Um, and I can think of times where me to a partner or a partner to me, there, there was an issue, and at the core of that issue was a lack of communication. You know, it, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I completely agree with you about that. Yeah, I think it's like a bar stool. So you've got these three legs, and if one of them erodes, it affects the other two. Mm -hmm. So if communication erodes, and all of a sudden maybe the trust isn't there the way right. it would have been, or respect isn't right. there. If the trust isn't there, then right. the respect and the communication start to erode, so on and so forth. And um, it's interesting because if you really just break it down in that way, and there's other pieces, of course, that go into great relationships, but I think those three are, are fundamental. And communication-wise, a lot of us aren't taught how to communicate verbally, non-verbally yep. over email, yep. over text. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's like, I got yeah. feedback when I did a 360 on myself that said that his texts sometimes are, are too brief. And so it doesn't come across that comes, it doesn't come across that he cares. Right. Which is a fascinating piece of information mm -hmm. to receive mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. something that I could change, mm -hmm. but we aren't always great communicators. We're not. And we assume all the time that someone knows what we're thinking or what we're feeling. And we are awful at predicting what someone is feeling and what someone's thinking. You know, and, and, you know, again, when you're walking fast, sometimes you walk right past that communication. Um, I, I mean, I can really, I can think of, you know, but, but if you've built that strong sense of mutual respect, that strong sense of trust, you can go back and, you, you know, you, Oh, you're right. Oh, yeah. And you can work through the the lack of communication. And you can let them know, hey, yeah. I need more positive reinforcement yeah. or I need you to be more clear in that email or, hey, when you present, there's an intensity to you and it's intimidating um, and you can actually have those conversations. You know, early on, a receptionist pulled me aside one day and said, it doesn't matter who one of your partners doesn't like me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and this is my partner's nicest, this person, nicest person in the world. What do you mean? When he walks in in the morning, he walks right past me. Sometimes he, he doesn't even say hello. 
I don't know what I'm doing wrong. And, you know, and that's a, a very basic, simple example, but not so, such a simple example. And it was easy for me to go talk to that person about it. And that person felt terrible about it and guarantee you that never happened again. It's interesting as you were talking about your partners, I, I'm thinking about each of them and Nancy's got a snack company with her daughter and is pursuing a business and mm. a dream and, and seems to be having fun trying to mm. create that. You've got Ed, who you mentioned, who's doing a documentary and is philanthropic and mm -hmm. has his hands in different things. You've got Dan, who you mentioned earlier, who mm -hmm. I've spent a lot of time right. with because he's an executive coach and right. loves trying to help people. Mm -hmm. You've got Bob, who I see walking around Bethesda all the time, seemingly happy and yeah. um, you know seems to be being a lot when I yeah. see him. Um, and you've got Todd I'm having dinner with him tonight. Yeah. So you have to say hi, but I see Bob all the time from afar walking yeah. around Bethesda. Yeah. Um, and, and then you've got Todd who's had his hands in different things and has explored. I work with a lot of executives and one of the things we try to establish is their number. We try to say, all right, what is a number that you want to hit financially mm. so that what is the number you have to hit? to make decisions that are not necessarily based on financial. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I see you like looking up because it sounds like foreign to mm -hmm. how you, mm -hmm. how you thought about it. But mm -hmm. for a lot of these people, they don't love what they're doing mm -hmm. for a lot of these people. It's a job mm -hmm. and they might love air elements of it, but they're working for somebody. Yep. Um, and for a lot of these people, they might say, Hey, I might still want to do this. But they're acknowledging that, yeah, this it, there is a price that comes with this job. Maybe it's travel. Maybe it's long hours. Yep. Maybe it's not the thing that they always dreamt of doing. Maybe they dreamt of coaching a high school football team. Yep. And so we talk about that, and we try to establish that number um, in an honest and true way. And then when they're at that number, they can then decide if they want to stay the course and mm -hmm. if they want to earn more mm -hmm. or if they want to – Mm -hmm. you know, consult to the company. I've had people that establish the number when I work with them and then they get to the number and they say, I actually think I do love doing this and mm -hmm. I really enjoy mm -hmm. it and I continue on. But for them to have those goalposts has been helpful for mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually think it's healthy. Uh, and, but one of the questions I'm curious for you as we think about those partners, when you do have enough money, what advice do you give to people about what's next for them? if they're fortunate enough to be in that situation, a lot of people are never fortunate enough to be in that situation. But if you have enough, what would you say to someone they should do next? I want to say two things about that. First, I'm not sure I'm competent to speak on that subject. And again, I just need to go back to my dad. So my dad works really hard, comes home as I'm getting a little older. Um, he works for somebody else. He really emphasizes to me the importance of trying to work for yourself. Mm. So there was an absence of money in our home. We lived in three kids, a two-bedroom house. The, me and my brother and sister, we still can't remember where we all slept, you know, because there were only two bedrooms. Um, all, it's, it's hard to piece together who slept where, when. I never had, my, I never had a bedroom. I never slept in a bedroom. I slept in a in a little den, and then later slept in a uh, in a in a rec room that we added to the house on a couch. So, you know, so yeah, money was always important, but I think more important than that because I saw how hard my dad worked and how he worked for others, and how frustrating that was for him because he had ideas, 
and some of those ideas got squashed by the people he worked for. So for me, it was always about being my own boss. And then, um, you know, when you're your own boss and you're your own boss and you're growing a company, you're, you got to make money. You got to, you got to meet payroll and you, you, you got to make money. So I, that's why I, it's hard for me to fit into that. There was a Harvard professor uh, who I remember said a long time ago, you know, um, anybody uh, who says money doesn't bring you happiness is not spending that money wisely. That kind of stuck with me. I'm not, but I don't think that really answers your question either. I really, I don't feel competent to answer your question. What would you add to your dad's advice? So his advice was, hey, you know, it's been really tough for me working for someone. Mm -hmm. If at all possible, mm -hmm. go work for yourself. Mm -hmm. How else would you advise somebody um, who, you know, my, my kids, what would you, what advice mm -hmm. would you impart on them mm -hmm. when it comes to work and, mm -hmm. and money? And what have you learned today that maybe you didn't know when mm -hmm. you, when your dad delivered that message mm -hmm. to you? Don't do it. Don't do it alone. I, I can, I really believe in the, the power of partnerships. Uh, I, you know, at least that, that was always, that's always been part of, you know, my dad never said anything about, you know, do it with a partner. Um, so that, that would be top of mind. Hmm. And money, what do you, what do you think about money today that you didn't, when you were in that two bedroom house and, you know, you didn't have a lot of means, what do you, how do you think about it now that you do have means? Yeah. Um, well, the money pieces come full circle. So I, I, you know, I always, I think, worked, worked hard. Um, the money came. Some of it was luck. Some of it, a lot of it was hard work. And a lot of it was the, the good work of others that I worked with. Um, but that all worked for me. You know, I, I, I liked, you know, that was, a, that was one of the ways of keeping score. And, um, and so... Now, uh, I'm on the other side of that in the sense that I have money I want to give away and I, I want to kind of work as hard and as smart at doing that as I feel I did earning it. And how does that make you feel? Great. I mean, I spend a lot of time now um, uh, working with building organizations um, that are doing good, that are, you know, that are, that are not my own businesses, but I kind of treat them that way. They're nonprofits that I approach just as I would my own business. And I remember when I was a kid, you were involved with a nonprofit and they had an event and they gave away t-shirts. And as a kid, I could kind of observe that, all right, like my dad's probably involved in this. And I would look on the t-shirt to see your name and I would, I wouldn't see it. And it would say anonymous. And I knew, mm -hmm a big part of your role with that organization mm -hmm. was enacting it with a level of anonymity. Mm -hmm. As you've gotten older, I've seen you out in front yeah. more. I've yeah. seen you on stages. I've yeah. seen your name, you know, mm -hmm. on a, we were just at an event and mm -hmm. I saw your name in mm -hmm. on a screen. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Talk about how you think about anonymity from a philanthropic standpoint and putting your name on something. Yeah, that was, that was a journey. That, that, that's a good one, Brian. That was a journey um, where for a long time, 
it just it really felt comfortable being anonymous and then you, you kind i kind of reached a point where like i want to set an example for my community for you for for other people and and it, it felt like it be, then became important to attach my name to things um so hopefully other people would aspire to do the same thing. You talked about partnerships and that's what you would add to pop. Who's your dad. And we called him pop. And now mm-hmm. my kids call you Papa, mm-hmm. but you talk about the power of partnership. And you also talked about being highly assertive. And so I'm curious for you mm-hmm. being highly assertive and being in partnerships. Mm-hmm. How did that play with your partners? Was there ever pushback that, Hey, you're controlling or you're too much, or did that ever show itself in a negative way as you were in partnership with other people that you were maybe too assertive or or too controlling? Um, I don't think so. I'm so many things are running through my mind now. How do you do this without like looking at notes and stuff? I, it's wild. Um, well, I'll tell you real real quick. It's, it's listening. And I actually think, that has a piece in potentially your answer because mm-hmm. I've watched you. It's interesting because you have a journalist background, which requires curiosity, mm-hmm. which we're going to get to this at some point. Mm-hmm. But like when I watch you in business settings, there's a level of curiosity and listening, but then there's this other side that does come in, mm-hmm. which I can see it. It's like, it boils out of you mm-hmm. and you can't help, but put mm-hmm. it out there. Mm-hmm. And I'd imagine that that helps in a lot of situations, but there are probably other times where, Maybe it's too much. Well, it's um, so again, I think if you have the that's how you're communicating, right? So if, if you've established the trust, the mutual respect, I think there's room for error there if you're over communicating or being overly absur- assertive. But it's interesting because um, one of those partnerships that didn't work out, I was leading a negotiation and the partner was there too. And um, sort of halfway through, you know, we, we went into our room and the other people went into their room. And that partner said to me, you're a pussy. You're, you're, you're too much of a pussy. Uh, I mean, that, that's, those are the words he used. And I kind of thought that was a compliment. Hmm. Why? Uh, well, um, because... I, you know, I, 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 you know, if, if I'm in a negotiation, I don't want to, I, I want it to be a, as close to a win-win end result as possible. Um, you know, I don't need, need to destroy the other side. I don't need to exert all the leverage that I have, uh, that I can draw upon. Um, so I guess I hold back, um, and, Has uh, kindness ever gone in the way for you? I I hope not. I mean, you know, he would he would say yes. <laughs> he would say yes. You know, crush him. You know, you got him right. You know where he crushed. Um, but you know, I I hope not. I hope not. It's interesting. It's when I'm around people who know your story and and your successes, they'll often pull me aside and be like, "Your dad's just a great guy. Like he's just a mm. a normal guy." What do you say when someone says oh, you're just like a normal guy? Uh huh. How do you how do you how do you like I, respond? That, to that? Well, that's that's a great compliment. I just um, 
I was just with the father of a guy who you and I were with the son a week and a half ago. And I never even knew the son before, but we had conversation. We talked about the full, you know, playing golf together uh, at some point. And the father, who I just know a little bit and I have a hold in very high regard, it came over to me and said, my son says you're a great guy. Mm-hmm. I was like, that, I, I love that. You're also someone who I think is, has cared about reputation. Yep. Um, when I am around you, I think you are someone who cares what other people think of you. Yes. What's the dark side of that? Um, well, you love to say control what you can control, right? Um, so there's sometimes things happen, events occur where, um, you know, I've, I lose control of, I've lost control of a situation and, um, and then perhaps my, I'm thinking a very specific example now that you're all too familiar with. Um, and then my reputation is attacked and, you know, that's, that's, yeah, it's debilitating when that happens. Yeah, John Wooden has a great talk where he talks about focus on character instead of reputation. Mm. Character is who you are. Reputation is how others see you. Mm. And to your point, you can't control how others perceive you or see you. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. When you went through that, what gave me some solace is like, I can't care about what somebody in Alabama thinks about my dad. Mm-hmm. Like that, they're welcome to think mm-hmm. whatever they think, and they're mm-hmm. entitled to that. And yep. we all get to judge people, mm-hmm. and we all do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we might judge an actor or an athlete or a musician or a politician mm-hmm. who we never have interacted with mm-hmm. a day in our life. Mm-hmm. So we all do it. Yep. And so if they're deciding to do that mm-hmm. about you, that's their prerogative. Mm-hmm. And like I did an exercise where I called my friends and said, hey, why are you friends with me? Mm-hmm. Like that I care about Mm -hmm. that matters to Mm me. Um, I care about how somebody that I interact with and you know, the local restaurant and, and they get to interact with Mm -hmm. me and how do I treat them? Like Mm I, I care about those elements, Mm -hmm. but to me, like the reputation that I have from someone who's never interacted with me, I mean, that's fine. They can think what they want. Um, so that's given me some, some solace that I, I wish I could be that way, uh, but um, I, I don't know. I, 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 you know, I, I care that um, if uh, you know someone meets me in passing and Google's me, they may read something about me that um, would lead them to think less of me. I, 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 I just I care about that. Where do you think that comes from? You know, now my mom pops into my head. Uh, My mom, you know, you can be anything you want to be, son. Um, You're terrific. You know, just she, she was, you know, filled with compliments. I mean, and she would have never, it would have destroyed her to hear people speaking ill of me. I don't know, maybe there's 
some something guilt. I don't know what it, you know, but um, maybe uh, I don't know. That that's probably part of it. Do you care about legacy? I do. Tell me more. I, I do. Um, I I hope uh, that you and your brothers and your wives and you know your children um, think about you know think about me and and my values and 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 how I've you know how I've lived my life in in a way that sets a, a shining you know shining example. That's how I think about legacy. What are those values? Um, work hard. Um, start from a place of trust. Uh, um, give back. Um, enjoy life. Go, do, see. Um, adventure uh, you know there's lots of storytelling that 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 we do uh that i do um about all those things and you know they're, they're important one of the things that i'm becoming more and more thoughtful about and i think about all the time and we've talked about it is curiosity mm -hmm. and as I said earlier, you're a journalist by trade. Mm -hmm. You spend a lot of time writing and mm -hmm. researching and asking questions. Mm -hmm. And to me, if you're going to be a journalist, you have to have great curiosity. Right. But here's the rub. Mm -hmm. I grew up in this amazing, functional, thriving family mm -hmm. from my perspective. Thank you. In an amazing neighborhood mm -hmm. with friends. I just felt very, very loved. Mm -hmm. What your mom instilled in you, I felt like you and mom instilled in me and my brothers, mm -hmm. which is you can be anything. Mm -hmm. Like, go do whatever you mm -hmm. want, work hard, mm -hmm. do the right thing, mm -hmm. be good people, be good citizens. But the rub that I've been wrestling with as a dad mm -hmm. is curiosity. And here's why. Our table at dinner we were allowed to speak our mind. It was not yes, sir, no, sir, mm -hmm. until we spoke out of turn, which I did plenty. <laughs> but it, it, was a, it was a house where you were allowed to have an opinion. Uh -huh. I didn't feel like I couldn't speak my mind in our house. I didn't feel like I couldn't speak my mind outside the house, which uh -huh. got me in trouble with coaches and teachers. But I felt one of the commonalities that me and my brothers have that both you and mom have is confidence. I don't think mom struggles with confidence. I don't think you struggle with confidence. I don't think me or my brothers struggle with a belief in ourselves to go do things. Mm -hmm. And I see that cripple people that I work with. Mm. So I feel as though you all did such a beautiful job instilling confidence in us, uh -huh. conviction in our capacity to figure things out and mm -hmm. to build stuff and to do things. But for me, one of the things that comes with conviction and confidence is sometimes I get there quicker than I should. Mm -hmm. And so I have an opinion and then I ground myself in that opinion mm -hmm. and then I don't listen to the person mm -hmm. and I don't stay curious to get their perspective mm -hmm. and their opinion. Mm -hmm. And so as I've gotten older, 
I have tried to stay curious for a little bit longer mm-hmm. and hold my confidence and conviction back. Mm-hmm. And I know I have an answer. My mind can work quickly, mm-hmm. but I've tried to not mute it, but turn the volume down mm-hmm. and stay curious a little longer. Mm-hmm. And when I'm around my brothers, I love mm-hmm. them. They're both amazing guys. Mm-hmm. You can hear this come out when mm-hmm. I'm with them. When I'm with some of my closest friends, we start to argue. Mm-hmm. And for me, like I've talked about this in therapy. I've talked about this with a coach that I work with. Mm-hmm. I've worked on trying to be curious more than I'm convicted. Mm-hmm. For you, you are passionate. Mm-hmm. You are thoughtful. Mm-hmm. You're smart. Mm-hmm. Your brain works and comes mm-hmm. up with ideas. Mm-hmm. Does the conviction, have you, have you ever tried to work on the curiosity piece and sort of go with that as a primary function and the conviction come in a secondary way? Mm. Um, I'm thinking about a couple things again. Um, first of all, in addition to the journalism stuff, I had the good fortune of going to law school, went to law school at night and Law school is also about asking good questions. It's about interrogating. It's about, you know, a lot of things, but it's it's also about asking asking good questions. So um, I think I think that's that's you know that's that really serves me well. I like in in a in a difficult situation if I'm in a conversation with somebody who. Um, who thinks Donald Trump is terrific? Um, you know, I, I, I'm very comfortable asking, you know, what's terrific about him? And then continuing sort of using the Socratic method. Wait, but are you actually. It's a little manipulative. Yeah, yeah. I'm being a little manipulative. Right. You're asking them that not because you're curious. Not. No, no, I'm not. Well, because a lawyer. Let's uh, go to let's go to lawyers. OK, because this is fascinating about lawyers. Yeah. Because lawyers tell me all the time. Don't ask a question that you don't know, you don't the, know answer the answer to. to. Right. That's not really a question. No, that, yeah, that's true. We're, like, whereas a doctor, you, you should, got me. You, you got should me. really be asking questions as a doctor to try to find out because you don't have the answer of where the pain is. or right. what The sickness is. Right. So I've always wondered with lawyers. I was like, yeah, that's bullshit. Like, mm-hmm. no, the purpose of a question mm-hmm is to try to gather information mm-hmm. that you don't know. Mm-hmm. Now, every once in a while, it's healthy I, to ask a question you do know the strategically. Answer yes. But but really, like, curiosity is not a... It, it's... Not manipulative. It's not manipulative. I, I get it. I get it. And I and I think, you know, I'm, I, the Trump thing's probably not the best example. I think there's some... There's a middle ground, though, too, where you think you know the answer, but you're open you're open to others. I mean, again, I just go back to conversations with my partners. Um, you know, uh, we never had a vote on anything. You know, we never said, okay, let's bring it to a vote. So I might start he- here, you know, over here somewhere, and one of them or two of them may be over here, and we'd, um, you know, we'd, we'd question our way through, uh, and I and I'd end up, you know, oftentimes not being my way wasn't the highway. So let's talk about sports. And because uh, you mentioned partners throughout, mm-hmm. you mentioned good partnerships, bad mm-hmm. partnerships. Mm-hmm. And you just said we never voted. Mm-hmm. But then when you got involved in owning two sports teams, mm-hmm. you did vote. Mm-hmm. There were three ownership groups. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and if it was two thirds, that's what you all went with. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk about, first of all, what was it like to own a sports team? Cause mm -hmm. most people listening to this, they're not going to experience that. Like you, you had dreams of doing mm -hmm. it. It was an exciting thing mm -hmm. for you to be able to do. Mm -hmm. But um, most people listening to this, they're like, wow, that must be pretty cool and pretty unique and, mm -hmm. and pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. What was the experience like for you? Really multifaceted. Really. I, so um, I think I'm probably a jock sniffer. Uh, so I love being around these extraordinarily talented athletes, amazing athletes. So that part I loved. Why? Why do you? What? What about it did you love? Um, I, I, well, again, I, I. What made them tick? You know how? Um, you know, you know when you get to know them at the end of the day, there's there's other interesting things about them other than that they can shoot a jump shot or or hit a slap shot uh, while standing on ice skates. Um, you know, and I, I enjoyed that about them, um, where they came from, how they got to where they got, um, their work ethic, you know, all of that stuff. Um, those cats are extraordinary. They're just extraordinary in so many ways. And so there was that. There was um, the, the joy. I mean, you know, one of my favorite stories is, uh, mom uh, would sort of scout around toward the end of a game, a basketball game that it looked like we were going to win. She would find a father and the 10-year-old son. She'd go up to him and say, would you like to go in the locker room afterwards? And I would take them into the locker room. And the players would be amazing. They, you know, size 20 shoes. They'd tie them around the kid's neck and autograph them and send the kid on his way. We had stuff in the locker room to give them. The players would always be, you know, stay in school, all that kind of stuff. You, you know, watching a 10-year-old look at a 7-foot-tall basketball player, it's just, it's just, it's joy. It's pure joy. So there was stuff like that. There was ways in which I could leverage uh, my ownership of the team for the greater good of the community and for the greater good of other philanthropic things that I was interested in. I could give people experiences. They, they would donate lots of money in order to sit in the front row with me and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So there was all that. There was also, there were a lot of similarities between the sports business and my business. My business was a subscription-based business, not different than, not a whole lot different than a season ticket-based business. A lot of the same marketing uh, skills that I had developed in building my business, I could apply to that business, work with people in that business, and we would be able to speak the same language. So, you know, there was also, gosh, you know, um, lots of games I could watch late at night, and it was kind of work, but it really wasn't work. You know, mom was asleep. You know, I'm watching Portland, Seattle, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'm, you know, because maybe we're thinking about signing one of those guys at the end of the year who's going to be a free agent or trading for them. So, I mean, just imagine having that as your job. You know, you're you're watching a game through that lens. Um, so that there was all of that, um, and uh, and again, I had wonderful partnerships there, general managers and to to an extent coaches, you know that. I w we would be working together to win. Um, so all of that I loved about it. Uh, and um, and then, you know, there were, there were 
aspects of it, you know, because I jumped into that business without going through the courtship period with partners. And those partnerships were never, there was never that solid foundation that was built of trust and mutual respect. And, you know, when that broke down, you know, that part of it became miserable. Besides the partnerships, what mm-hmm. didn't you like about owning the sports teams? Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I would, I want to say that being in the public eye a little bit, but that's not true. I, I loved when a kid would come up to me and ask me for my autograph. I was like, it was hysterical. So I, you know, I love that. Um, I really did enjoy going to a cocktail party and, you know, people wanted to talk about, you know, how, how the team was doing. Uh, you know, I, I did, I did like that. I like that a lot. Um, there was, there was the, the back and forth with sports journalists um, that I mostly enjoyed, sometimes didn't. Um, I can give you some. Go. I don't think it was always healthy. So, Mm. yeah, like I would watch your interactions with referees (laughs) and we laugh, but I don't think it was healthy. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Losing is, is really emotional. Yes. Um, Yes. Selling a team and them leaving. I mean, the Thrashers mm-hmm. left Atlanta. Mm-hmm. That was not fun. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that sucked. Um, also, like, this is interesting. I wasn't there for this, but Michael, my younger brother, his senior year of high school, you, you had bought the team and you weren't around as much. Right. It takes you away. It did. So you were a very present dad. I mean, mm-hmm. Michael's a senior in high school. He didn't need you in the mm-hmm. same way. He was mm-hmm. when he was in fifth grade, but it, it was a joke at the Italian restaurant mm-hmm. that mom and Michael used to go to all the time because right. you weren't there. Right. Uh, the other piece is autonomy. There are times when you have to make decisions around going to a wedding or going to a playoff game. Mm-hmm. Um, or and, being at the wedding, but... Or watching a game. Watching on a watch, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I think those are things that are really real. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see this with other people in sports. Sports can dictate your life mm-hmm. uh, and it can be addictive in a mm-hmm. way. It is. Um, it is. It is absolutely addictive. And autonomy isn't something that you've mm-hmm. really talked about in we're like 45 minutes in or so 50. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, we're almost an hour in, but you haven't even hit on autonomy. But from my perspective, one of the things you've really valued throughout your life is the freedom to say yes to things mm-hmm. and to actually say no to things, mm-hmm. even though it sounds like you had a hard time saying no. Mm-hmm. Sports is not an autonomous vehicle. Mm-hmm. It, this is the schedule. This mm-hmm. is the game. Right. Athletes really struggle with this because they don't have control over when, heck, athletes miss the birth of their babies sometimes. They miss big life events sometimes. Um, so, yeah, the autonomy piece was also a challenge, I thought. Um, you know, it's interesting, Brian, because yeah, all those things are rushing back now. The times when I'd have to get up from the dinner table, we'd be out at a restaurant and have to go out and take a call. Yeah, we were at the um, beach and you would be negotiating. And, and, be ne- yeah. and so someone who was very present as a dad, I w- you, were, you didn't have the boundaries that you had growing up. Right. I saw you on the phone negotiating right. when we're at the beach. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I think... And this, you know, this is a bit of a, this is a flaw. Let's call it a flaw. For me, 
the glass is always 80% full. So I think I'd be terrible in a shrink's chair going back and talking about my childhood. Have you never gone to therapy? Um, I have for a very, very brief period of time. And you didn't like it? I liked it a lot, actually. Um, but it was, it was for a very brief period of time. Um, but you call it rose-colored glasses. How are, naive how, optimism? Huh? Naive optimism? Yeah, naive really hurts. Just Have people called you a naive optimist before? No. Interesting. Not that I, not to my face, <laughs> but you know, that's uh, surprising. I'm not calling you a naive optimist, but I'm, I'm surprised that others in interactions wouldn't say you're a naive optimist. And, and to this point, your partnership in Atlanta, you were one that would say, Oh, we'll figure it out. Right. And yeah. no, I'll take care of that person. Yeah. You were, tr you're trying to be a hero yeah. in a lot of ways. And well, you I, know, you know, Optimists live longer than pessimists. I know, you know the that. research. I probably shared that with you. Yeah, you might have. So that optimism has amazing qualities. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. I think it outweighs the pessimism qualities, and there are downsides, in my opinion, to most things. Yeah, a wise man, I think, once told me too much of anything can be a bad thing. Yeah. So, but it's just so interesting when you asked me that question ten, five or ten minutes ago. You know, again, I just went to the rose-colored glasses. You did, and I saw all the great stuff. Um, and, um, and I think, I think that's, you know, probably on, on the arc of my life. I think that's probably the way I've, you know, I look back, I look back fondly on, on, on everything. Any regrets? Um, that's such a hard question because I, I kind of go to little micro examples of people I wished I had spent more time with and um, those aren't micro examples but I mean they're very specific examples um, and then uh, uh, you know I really, re I really regret uh, the way things turned out with the sports teams you know, I have huge, you know, regret about that. Um, but then I come back, you know, when things went bad, this, there were a bunch of people, yourself included, you showed up with a jar with some sand, some pebbles, and some big stones. And, you know, we talked about the importance of those big stones. Um, you know, other people came calling, other people, you know, I'm 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 like shriveled shriveled up in bed, and other people came calling and pulled me out of bed, and um, so uh, it really helps to think about again. Where do I go? I go to the people who came calling, um, and have I think really pushed to the background um, the the depression that I've that I was dealing with back then. What did you learn about yourself going through that? You know, I uh, I'm not Superman. Um, I uh, I don't have answers for everything. Um, 
and um, depression is something very real and very debilitating um, and you have to really work hard to work your way out of it those are some of the things I learned had you ever felt that up until that point no and you know I've lost I lost parents I had already lost both my parents um, had some other setbacks but no 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 what did that feel like I almost lost the ability to function um, didn't want to see anybody didn't you know just it, it I really had to be pulled through that I just had to be pulled through that which you know for somebody I think I'm extremely self-confident self-assured all the you know for somebody not to be able to pull yourself through that it just it felt awful depression people often talk about that they're just focused on themselves and they actually when they start focusing on other people it helps them uh have some purpose mm -hmm. was there anything during that time that you can remember that actually made you help make you really feel more alive and, and, and healthier coming out to come out coming out of it yeah well in in the in the short coming out in the short coming out again it was people it was a friend saying we're going to go to a restaurant we're going to sit in the back you can face the wall but we're going to a damn restaurant let's go um and i there were lots of examples like that that again that that was in the short term uh, in the time since i come back to the rose-colored glasses i guess um it did liberate it was liberating it, it was it was liberating um I didn't have all the obligations that were associated with that. I could now pursue other interests and pursue them more fully because I had the time to pursue them more fully. I could say, okay, look at this. I'm, I'm over here now doing this. This feels great. You know, uh, I'm not devoting 28 hours a day to, um, you know, trying to be a, a successful owner of a sports team. How long did that last, the depression? Okay, so um, I saw a doctor very early on uh, who gave me some, what he said were very mild anti-anxiety pills. Um, so the f in addition to people helping me, those pills helped me. Uh, they really did pretty quickly. Um, and I would call. I would say the the depth of the depth of depression, thirty days. It mm -hmm. was like thirty days, and then there's a sort of gradual lifting, um, you know. And and here we are, eight years later. Uh, it still s snaps back every once in a while, in all kinds of weird ways. Um, you know. You know, somebody will, will say, Al Horford, you know, having a great playoff right now. 
I, I think the world of Al Horford as a human being, not just as a basketball player. But, you know, somebody will say, boy, I, you know, are you following Al Horford? And I don't know, that, that, that triggers both a sort of a positive feeling and a negative feeling that sort of relates a little bit back to the depression. It's interesting because we've, we've talked about <laughs> some me. of this, but I've never heard you actually use the word depression. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of an mm-hmm. interesting time for us to have this discussion. Mm. But I also think without being a clinical psychologist, like post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. uh, is what I witnessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you went through a traumatic experience, mm-hmm. and then I witnessed your inability to go places previously that you felt comfortable in mm-hmm. out of fear or nervousness mm-hmm. or anxiety. I had a convertible. I, I wouldn't even put the top down. Mm. I couldn't put the top down. And what was the fear? I didn't want to be seen. Yeah. You know, I had to go from point A to point B, but I, I didn't I didn't want to put the top down. If someone goes through that or is going through that, mm-hmm. what would you say to them? Go see a doctor and um, don't push the people away who are you know, knocking at your door and, you know, which probably there's a tendency to do. You don't want to see anybody. The, and, and for people who know somebody going through that, forcefully push through that door because there's going to, there may be some, there really was some hesitancy. I mean, I just remember how determined that guy was to drag me out to the restaurant. I, you know, I remember, um, you know, what, what you did, what, what a neighbor did. I mean, I just, a, a flood, you know. So, yeah. Eight years later, mm-hmm. let's talk about toast. Okay. We'll go a little lighter. My epitaph. Yeah. He's so, toast. That's the epitaph. <laughs> so it's so interesting because I see the excitement and the joy you have playing around this toaster. And by the way, doing the Do Good Institute at Maryland, where you're still mm-hmm. highly involved philanthropically, you're involved with other organizations and, and doing good and, and making sure that you're carving out space and time to mm-hmm. do that. But the toast is something that I think my friends get a kick out of. I'm mm-hmm. sure people come up to you and they don't even think this is really serious. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk about the toaster and why this is something that you're still interested in, in being engaged in and, and pouring your soul into and, and how does it make you feel to be engaged with it? Yeah, it it's just, it, I don't really sort of distinguish it all that much from the Do Good Institute of the University of Maryland or some of the work I've done you know, with other nonprofits. This one, I really wanted to succeed. Uh, I really, really mean this because the people that I work with on it, uh, I wanted to succeed for them. I, you know, I don't need another payday. What does success mean, though? Is success financial? Like, how, how do for you them think about it's, it? I, for them, it's financial. What is it for you? Uh, I've already, I'm already there. When the first toaster came off the, the, uh, the line, uh, and it was beautiful, and it worked great, and it did all the things I wanted it to do. That was successful. So me. this is gravy. This is gravy. Well, how would you define success? Broadly, not not involving toast. Um, boy, I mean, each each thing, the thing, different things I've gotten involved in. So, with the teams, I would define success as winning a championship, winning winning a championship to start. Uh, that's so. Kinda, do you think that was the North Star there? So, do you see it as a failure that you didn't? Um, here come the rose-colored glasses. The last year, 
we were on the right track. In the last year, we won more games than any Atlanta Hawks team ever won in the history of the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, we made it to the Eastern Conference. How finals. about the Thrashers, though? Thrashers, you know, they, they got swept in the playoffs the one year they were there, mm-hmm. and then they moved. And they moved, yeah. Um, yeah, that was that. That was not a success, you know. That but was, you're not even calling it a failure. No, I can't. It's hard for me to call it a failure because, um, tried my hardest, could control what I could control, and um, and. There were just a lot of forces at work. All right. So I mentioned my friends earlier. But, You're funny, right? Blackjack, you always win. Golf, yeah. very good. My friends would be like, oh, your dad, he, he wins. He, you know, he, he just wins. What are failures? How would you, like, if you look back at your life and say, gosh, like, you know, that was a failure, where would you go? Well, uh, in, 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 in business, many, you know, multiple failures, um, you know, I, I I think I've learned more from the failures than I have from the successes. Which which ones are failures? Oh, uh, at UCG we started something called the American Petroleum Exchange. Uh, I poured a lot of a lot of my heart into it, and uh, our company poured a lot of money into it, and it folded. Um, yeah, that 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 one, and see, that's one I could control. You know, I really had total control over. So that's an easy one to identify as a failure. Um, I, I could name a bunch of other ones in business. Uh, you know, I owned I owned some restaurants that ultimately failed. Um, what I learned from that was, don't go into the restaurant business. <laughs> I mentioned earlier. I asked you, what's a weakness that you feel like you've gotten better at? Mm-hmm. Um, is there is there something today that you feel like um, you're worse at? God, I ask these hard questions. By the way, I thought of a weakness um, that I've gotten better at. I used to have much more of a temper than I have now. So I've gotten better at that. See, I knew I thought that's what you were gonna answer because my mom claims that to be I true. I used to have a temper, right? What did you do to get better at that? Uh, got older. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I'd, I'd have. I'd have to really, really think about that. I just know that. Uh, I don't. I don't throw golf clubs. <laughs> I never threw golf clubs, although maybe I should, but I've always said that I've had a temper uh-huh. and it's something that I've constantly had to work on. Mm-hmm. And people that know me in my professional setting are so shocked to hear that, mm-hmm. but that's not shocking for you because you witnessed yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, mom played a big role there because she always named it, you know, she would name it. And so that le- raised my level of consciousness around it. So I think that that was kind of she she helped she helped you know help with the governor you know it's still there probably um, but you know I think I think she really helped me with that. Did your mom or dad have a temper? No. Interesting. No. Because I feel like I I still have it and. So your, you got that from me. Yeah. You can't touch your toes. You got that yeah, from all me. All these bad qualities from my uh-huh. dad. Right. Um. I, I think I got though, 
the ability to create the ability to see a dream and a vision. Um, like I think I'm a pretty creative mm-hmm. mind. I'm a builder. Mm-hmm. I like building stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a dreamer. Lots of curiosity. Lot of, lots of curiosity. Lots I think, of curiosity. I think the good that you've passed on to me far outweighs the bad. I'm still waiting for the golf swing to come in, but we're, we're going to work on that. Um, what's a successful day for you now? If you think about, gosh, that was a great day. What does it look like? Okay, so I'm really the luckiest guy in the world. I live in these places where it's always 72 degrees. So my, my successful day is uh, get up, uh, do some push-ups, uh, then do some work. Uh, we're got, you know, whether it's work on the toaster, work on some of the nonprofits I'm involved in, uh, work on, uh, maintaining relationships with people, uh, work on, you know, our family finances, you know, I, I gotta have a few productive hours in the morning and then ideally have lunch with family or friends and go play golf and then, um, have dinner with family or friends, and then come home, um, maybe watch something on Netflix with mom, and then uh, she goes to bed, and maybe I watch something else on Netflix, or maybe I you know, start writing, doing some stuff. You didn't mention watching the news, which is probably in there some at some point. Too. Oh, you know, that comes in waves. Uh, Oh yeah, so that's definitely one of the things I do after mom goes to sleep. I hear more Netflix. I'm like, no, you put on CNN. Yeah, yeah. Well, whenever I can find a little opening, <laughs> yeah, I do that. Yeah, I do that. Dad, this has been awesome. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. This is usually the time where I say, um, let's use this space to promote something that you want to promote. You can, you could mention your social media handles, which you don't have. You can mention a book, which you don't have yet. Um, but let's talk about the toaster, maybe the do good Institute, neither one. So, uh, sorry. So, uh, a year from now, uh, the Holocaust museum in Washington, uh, which is just an extraordinary place is going to be celebrating its 30th anniversary. And, um, here we are in this period where we're living through a genocide right now. We've lived through other genocides since the Holocaust. Um, This one, for a lot of reasons, feels closer to home for a lot of people. Um, So the mission, the meaning of that museum has probably never been more important than it is right now. Uh, Mom and I have been honored, along with another couple, Bill and Carolyn Wolf, to chair next year's um, gala. You know, they need money to continue, you know, building out the doing the extraordinary work that they do. There's now more work to be done. Um, So if I was going to plug anything, uh, you know, I would urge people to uh, support that museum, maybe turn out at that gala next year. It you know me, I like to get my hands dirty with these things. It's going to be a very special night. um, And it's a night where. you know, hopefully families will come uh, with age-appropriate, you know, children. Certainly no, nobody 10 years old should be there, but somebody 15 years old, 35 years old, and 55 years old uh, will find it a very meaningful evening. Beautiful. So when that does go live, I'll hit up all of you who are listening to this to see if you can join us. 
Um, I am on social media. So I'm at Twitter at Brian Levinson, LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Dad, this has been like 38 years in the making. I want to, I want to flip the, (laughs) I want to get me and mom and we want to interview you. Can we do that sometime? We can do it. Okay. I don't know if I'll publish it on the podcast, but but maybe we will. That's, that's actually an interesting idea. I like that idea. Um, and it's interesting. I remember I had on a guy named Ryan Hawk and Ryan's brother is AJ Hawk who played for the Green Bay Packers and his dad, um, he always, his hundredth episode every year, he has his dad and his brother on the podcast. And so I said to Ryan, I was like, gosh, I really love listening to you and your brother and your dad talk. And I was telling him about a bit about you. And this was probably three years ago. And Ryan's like, why don't you have your dad on the podcast? And I'm like, yeah, I'll have him on eventually. And so you're not the 300th episode. You're like 277 or I don't know what the numbers are. I don't look at them. Um, but this has been awesome. Um, probably the most memorable one I've ever had. So wow. I'm glad we did it. And hopefully you all enjoyed listening. Let's do it again for the thousandth. We'll do it for the thousandth one. That would be awesome. We won't talk about how old you'll be but but we'll do it for the thousandth the 2000th awesome. how about we do that every, every, every thousand yeah. yeah every thousand all right thanks for coming on all right pal